0: Welcome to Writer, Writer, Pants on Fire, where authors talk about things that never happened to people who don't exist. I'm your host, Mindy McGinnis. You can check out my books and social media at mindymcginnis.com and visit the Writer, Writer, Pants on Fire blog at writerwriterpantsonfire.blogspot.com.
1: Today's guest is A.C. Goggin, the author of The Scarlet Trilogy. Scarlet, Lady Thief, and Lionheart, and The Elemente, which will start with Rain the Earth in January 2018. She serves on the board for the nonprofit Boston Glow, creating opportunities to encourage and engage teen girls in the greater Boston area. She has a master's in creative writing from St. Andrews University in Scotland, and a master's in education from Harvard University. She joined me today to talk about how she began to query as a 14-year-old, her own love of reading historical fiction and fantasy influenced her writing, both then and now.
0: The mother-daughter relationship is always perilous. Her mother was Queen Catherine de' Medici. At a royal court full of intrigue, can Princess Margot find the strength to defy her dangerous mother in the name of love? If you liked the TV series Reign, you will love Medici's daughter by Sophie Perrineau. I always start by asking my guest about their query journey and how they acquired an agent. So anything at all that you have to offer about the process. For those who are still in the trenches, it's always much appreciated by our listening audience.
2: So I actually started querying books when I was 14 years old. I started querying when I was in high school. I knew I wanted to be an author at that point. That was something I was always trying for. I was not a 14-year-old prodigy. I was terrible. And I got some very gentle rejection letters from a lot of good agents and editors. Put aside the querying for a while. And really just focused on what I was good at, which was being a really bad writer. Uh, Which (laughs) sounds a little bit weird, but (laughs) in a lot of ways, it was just permission to be terrible. Which is what I needed in a lot of different ways in my life at that point. Going through a lot of personal stuff with my parents getting divorced, I was dealing with awful migraine headaches, and I really just wanted permission to be bad at things. So I kind of just pulled back and spent a lot of time writing bad books and figuring out what made books good and what made books good in my eyes. So I didn't start querying again until after I had gone through college and gone through a Scottish MFA, which is called a Master of Letters program. I always wanted to be a traditionally published author, so that was something that I felt very strongly about from the beginning. So I spent a much longer time querying agents than I did querying publishers. I spent about three years and four different novels querying agents. Each one sort of got me better and better responses, a little bit closer to that sunshine breaking through the clouds, holy moly, yes. And I had some horrible Horrible rejections. I did a bunch of revisions for one agent and then was rejected on Christmas Eve. it oh. was a really bad year. <laughs> Though, interestingly, it was really only a couple of months later that I finished Scarlet and had started sending out Scarlet, which is my first novel, out to agents. And Very, very immediately got a much different response than I had been getting in the past. People were really responding to it. I was asked for several different full queries. And then I had two different agents who were interested in offering representation. And then I picked one of them. My agency is Bookstop Literary, and my agent is Minju Chang.
0: Oh my gosh, that's so impressive to me that you were actually sending query letters from the age of 14. I knew that I wanted to be a writer when I was 14. But all I did towards achieving that was daydream, sitting around thinking how wonderful it would be if I were a published writer. So it's really, really cool to me that you took that initiative, that you said, this is what I want to do, and you went like an adult and found out how to make that happen. So what kind of resources, I'm assuming this was a while ago, I don't know how old you are, but what kind of resources were you leaning on as a 14-year-old trying to learn how to write a query and who to send to?
2: I was trying to not necessarily deal books, but definitely access the then very expensive Writer's Digest in Barnes & Noble without having to pay for it. So I definitely spent a lot of time wedged between bookcases trying to frantically copy stuff down in the days before you could just snapshot something with your phone, trying to learn as much as I could from that without actually paying for the book, which is not super cool of me. But you know what? I was 14, guys.
0: Yeah, you get a pass (laughs) on that.
2: Thank you. I do think that just daydreaming about being a writer and about being a published author is half of the battle. Even from like a psychological perspective, the idea of modeling and positive rumination, I think has so much impact on the decisions we go on to make with our future. So seriously, don't discount daydreaming.
0: The other thing that I find impressive about your story, though, is that you actually were writing because I always said I wanted to be a writer, but I never actually finished. A novel, I would start things or I would write something really short, but at no point did I ever write a novel. And so I think it's interesting that you had gone ahead and done that, whether they were bad or not. I mean, you're right. First, you have to suck. That's all there is to it. But I didn't start Absolutely. writing my sucky books until I was in my 20s. So you were ahead of me there. Do you remember that um, self-help book called, is it The Wish? The Gift? Yeah. Are you talking about The Secret? The secret, yes. Where it's basically like just if you really want something really badly and you think about it a lot, it will happen for you. And I never actually read it, so, you know, completely paraphrased there. One time I bought a car. Somebody had left
2: the audio tape of the secret in there, and it just started playing at me. A creepy but very interesting experience. So apparently the secret will find you if you don't find the secret.
0: (laughs) I was working in a library and we had like probably 15 copies of that book and everybody kept checking it out all the time. And I was like, guys, I mean, surely you see that everyone is checking this book out. It can't possibly actually work because people keep renewing it. And that was kind of my bitter thought process. I have spent so many hours of my life daydreaming and wanting to be a published author and at that point in my life all I'd had was rejection for 10 years obviously this is bullshit and then I <laughs> know I've actually thought about that now as an adult but I'm like oh my god maybe the secret was right <laughs> that is the true genius of the secret right it always comes through. <laughs> it always happens for you I think that's so impressive honestly mm-hmm. that you had written And one about that process of querying, because as you said, it used to be, and I was querying during those times too, you couldn't just send an email and you couldn't just find someone's preferences or even their mailing address online. You had to go buy that big book, the writer's market 1997 Guide to Literary Agents. <laughs> yes, exactly. And it was expensive. It was a reference book, so it was really expensive. I think it was like 30 or $40. So I think it's really telling that you had that drive, though, even at 14, to make that happen. I think that's really, really cool. I also can't imagine the emotional gut punch of a 14-year-old getting a rejection letter because I was like in my 30s before I had thick enough skin to just take it.
2: <laughs> I was a real grumpy teenager. So I think I probably handled it with like time for more X. Um,
0: <laughs> okay, so obviously things did work out for you. You're the author of the Scarlet trilogy, which I want to talk about more in a in a minute, as well as the Elemente books, which will hopefully be a quartet, of which the first one is called Rain. R-E-I-N, rain the Earth, and that comes out in January of next year. Myself, I mostly write standalones, but you seem to prefer to work in the broader scope of trilogies and quartets. So do you think that your genre as a fantasy slash historical writer calls for that? Or do you just, as a creator, find it more freeing to work in that larger canvas? It's really
2: interesting actually to think about that because I think going into the Scarlet trilogy, honestly, my default to it being a three book series had a lot to do with what I thought success looked like in the market, if I'm being totally honest. You know, I'd grown up reading so much fantasy, historical fiction, and all of those are trilogies, all of those are series. So it was sort of my default assumption, like so many things that I've had to sort of unlearn about the writing process that. Good books had to be in a series and satisfying books, really. If you're going to go so far as to develop a world like this, um, it's got to be in a series. And I think to a point that is true, especially with world development, when you're looking at a fantasy series, there's just so much to hang out and look at and enjoy about a new world. Mm-hmm. oftentimes i don't think it's as satisfying to think that it's a one and done sort of experience problem i ran into with scarlet which is something that i'm really reevaluating with elementae is that it is really tough to beat a character's arc into three books in each one you're making them go through significant life change significant character arc and mm-hmm. then you're essentially trying to get them back to square one at the beginning of the next book and it just feels Cruel, and at some point, it also feels like you are you have to have sort of the Deus Ex Machina um, to do your work for you. It has to be some sort of external force that your character is then reacting to rather than a really agency driven choice by your character. Mm -hmm. Um, I think the best books accomplish that agency driven choice. I was finding it difficult not to have the real problem of, well, stuff is going on around you. So Mm -hmm. now you need to react and make different choices based on that, which I think is still a satisfying story. I just don't think it's as elegant, necessary, fulfilling, satisfying, Mm -hmm. all of those. Mm -hmm. For the Elemente, it's an interesting journey because the story, when it's complete, will theoretically be four different books told by four different protagonists with four drastically different character arcs that are all weaving together and playing out on the same broad international scope of contributing to World War and major, major things that are going on involving several different countries. I've found it really, really satisfying to have the continued fabric of that series be the backdrop rather than the character development. Mm -hmm. And being able to swing the camera left and right and focus on different people has just been really, really freeing in that sense. It's given me so much more latitude to move around So much more room to tell different stories and really get into full character arcs with Easter eggs and more interesting things that play off of each other and play into each other rather than going back to that idea of beating the dead horse.
0: Do you think of Scarlet as historical or fantasy or a blend? I definitely think of it as historical. It's definitely intended to be historical fiction.
2: It does often get shelved as fantasy, and I'm never quite sure why. There's no magic in it. I think it's just we're so used to associating, like, weapons, trees, thievery,
0: (laughs) must be fantasy. (laughs) Okay, I think that's actually kind of valid, but... It might not be a bad thing to have it shelved in fantasy, because historicals in YA don't necessarily always sell that well, so it might actually do you a more favor. Oh, yeah, they
2: are a tough
0: sell. I have written... historical and a fantasy, both of them separate, not with blended genres. I found that I needed so much space for the fantasy. And that is part of the reason why my fantasy ended up being split um, into two books. It's a duology. But even then, I mean, these are long books. My first one, Given to the Sea, I think it was nearly a hundred thousand words. And the second one was close as well. When I wrote the synopsis and I sent it to my agent, I was just pitching it as one book, and it was a 10-page synopsis. And she was like, Mindy, this is a really freaking long book. And I was like, no, 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 no. It'll be fine. We sold it as a duology. And then as I started writing it, I found that it really was a very long book, and it just kept going. I had trouble getting it in underneath 100,000. I think it was like maybe 106 when I turned in a draft, and we got it down to like 98, maybe. Did you run into that when you were writing Rain the Earth, that you needed more room for your fantasy, or did you have a word count in mind before you started? I
2: was actually very protective of Rain the Earth. So going back to the original query story, actually, it is not one of the books that I was querying at the time, but it was one of the books that I started immediately thereafter. So I started writing um, Rain the Earth when I was 15, 16. It was terrible. (laughs) But... I've written it about six or seven different times in the intervening years mm-hmm. um, from different characters' perspectives from, you know, different countries. It really made me learn so much about the world and about writing, the craft of writing fantasy. Mm-hmm. I really knew that I wanted to focus on fantasy, and I wanted to make this story work in particular. My agent was the one who encouraged me to really work on a full draft first, and at first I was like, "Oh, it sounds so annoying, everybody's just going to reject it, and then I'll be... A full draft out. Mm-hmm. But when I really started to work on perfecting it and looking at it, it kind of got me back to that feeling of being a teenager and just having a very selfish time mm-hmm. where it doesn't matter what the word length is going to be. And it doesn't matter how terrible this is because I can fix it if I want to fix it. And if I don't want to fix it, then I move on with my life. I was very much enjoying sort of my protective little bubble there. And I wasn't being very careful about word count. That being said, when I turned it into my editor, it was about um, 120 thousand words. Wow! And together we got it down to I think it weighs in at about 111. That was a huge learning process. Was really trying to edit edit my younger self out
0: of right in the earth. I had an experience today where my sister. She was either retrieving the Christmas tree or she had found some old Christmas wrapping paper in the attic, something to that effect. And she had gone upstairs and she sent me a text. She said, Mindy, I just found a three ring binder with a novel you wrote in maybe 2001 do you want this back? (laughs) And I said, dear God, I said, yes, either give it to me or burn it. It's a book that I wrote a long time ago. And a book like you're saying that I have rewritten probably from scratch six or seven times. Uh, It's book of my heart. And one day I would like to see it published. But the version that my sister then brought over in a three ring binder going in the fireplace, that'll be my Christmas gift to myself.
2: But it's fun to read stuff like that. Like, I still have so many old notebooks. A friend of mine, Annie Cardi, I'm sure at the chance he won't return, she recently had a fundraiser because she was running the Boston Marathon where authors read all their, like, juvenilia. And it was hysterical. Like, going back to some of that stuff and just being like, oh, my God, why did I think this is okay?
0: Yeah. I was such All a right, bad writer. Off. I believe there is an element of innate talent, but a lot of it is just the grind of getting better.
2: Absolutely. And I, so I do a little bit of work looking at like the psychology of creativity. And I think there is an interesting falsehood out there about talent that often what we think of as talent is actually people who have gotten started on those 10 years or 10,000 hours of practice Uh significantly earlier. Honestly, most talent, most success, most craft comes down to work.
0: 16th century France twists under the serpentine rule of Catherine de' Medici and is torn apart by religious war. At a court dominated by intrigue, Princess Margot's hand in marriage becomes the seal on a tenuous peace. When her wedding devolves into the St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre, Margot will be forced to choose between her loyalty to her family and her soul. Medici's Daughter by Sophie Perrineau, historical fiction at its best. A riveting page-turner skillfully blending illicit liaisons and political chicanery.
1: Coming up, A.C. on how she knew her own skill set was better suited for traditional publishing rather than self-publishing, and how teaching writing can be inspiring you have
0: educator resources available on your site for teachers and schools that schedule you for a visit. So do you find that having such material available makes you more marketable when it comes to securing school visits or promoting your books for classroom reading? I
2: sort of reevaluate that stuff once a year. School and library books, those don't seem to be my darling market. It's always been very difficult for me to book school visits I still really feel strongly about having that stuff on my website. seriously encourage other people to do the same is because I have a pretty strong educator background. Teachers should have all of the resources at their disposal, bring as many books as they want into the classroom, and if they're mine, that's fantastic. If they're not, that's awesome as well. I fully understand that I don't tend to be the sort of book that makes a state list and that often limits teachers in what they can get an automatic yes for to bring someone to a classroom. But should any teachers ever be interested in talking to me, have me talk to their kids about writing, I try to do as much of that as I'm able to. I am just a really big fan of educators, English teachers, all that they do. Like I mentioned, I have an educator background, so that's definitely a big piece of my heart. The more we support our educators, the more we support the populations that they support.
0: I've been on both ends of the writer slash librarian slash school educator, desk, table, whatever. It is a hard market to crack. I have been lucky in that I already had extensive librarian connections throughout my local area and the state. And that made a difference for me right out of the gate, because my first book was picked up as a Choose to Read Ohio book, which means it gets promoted throughout the state, elevating the exposure. Librarians check those lists, and if you get on one and you're on their radar... That is invaluable. So
2: I work with a writing group. We all have really, really different books. One of them, her books are award-winning and make a million state lists and are amazing, super important books. But not for nothing, she also does a ton of work to coordinate those school visits, to talk to the places that want to bring her there. It takes a ton of emails back and forth, and it's
0: things that I don't always have time for, really. When you do have that exposure to school and library, you're also beating this pavement a lot. And that's the truth. I am very fortunate in that I had the exposure beforehand, but in order to sustain that, yes, I am constantly doing appearances throughout the state and even driving outside of the state. And when you do that kind of trip, most of the time, the travel is on you. So if you drive, if you get a hotel room, all that is on you, you're just going to put yourself in front of people. And there's a lot of work involved. Right now, I'm going in the winter season, so I'm not doing a whole lot of appearances in the winter because I live in Ohio and things get tricky up here. But typically, when I am organizing for spring or summer events, and fall is the heavy one, but I am answering emails for about two hours in every morning in coordination. Oh, and yeah. It's a lot of work, and I do write full-time, so I'm able to do that. And that's kind of the catch-22 is that I'm able to write full-time because I'm able to secure those visits and profit from them, but I'm able to secure those visits and profit from them because I have the time to sit down and do that because I don't work. (laughs) Right, absolutely. It just is a ton of work. You're active on social media across quite a few platforms, so how do you balance writing with the time-suck Of maintaining an online presence?
2: I'll be honest, I don't feel like I'm particularly good or savvy at being online. I feel like I use Instagram for pictures of my dog, and I also have a baby niece now, so I definitely get a lot of posting mileage out of her because she's adorable. I feel like I neglect Facebook. I use that as sort of the most static one. probably use Twitter the most, especially because I think... We're just at such an interesting point in our culture right now with the status of Twitter, Um, that it's actually the place that I go to for most of my news, and it's the place that I go to for a lot more world connection than just my network connection, which is a very interesting way for a social media platform to have evolved. So I've been on Twitter for years and years and years, but it's like, that's new. This is a really interesting time for Twitter. Overall, I tend to use social media in a very frivolous way. I don't think I've ever been very savvy as sort of a business person on Twitter. You know, again, is honestly all of these things, the hustle of the school visits, the inability to leverage social media. All of this stuff is why I went the route of traditional publishing. I know that those aren't my strengths. I would never be successful as a self-published author. I don't have the hustle. I don't have that that business savvy and that drive that they do. And I have so much respect for the friends of mine that are self-published authors and just killing it. They Mm -hmm. work so hard and they see great rewards. I don't have that bone. It's sink or swim. There's there's only one way here, and that's got to be traditional publishing, where I have Mm -hmm. sort of a distribution machine behind me.
0: So talk about that a little bit then. Because I think it's a it's a great concept to put out there because I think a lot of people that want to become published often see the quick route, and it is a quick route to self-publish, but they don't understand the intense amount of work involved that is on someone else's shoulders when you're traditionally published and have to go that longer haul so if you could talk about that for a little bit and how you knew even though you already covered it a little bit but if you could go into it a little bit more how you knew that trad pub was the route for you that would be great
2: yeah absolutely i mean i think it had to go back to all of that market research you know sitting in barnes and Nobles with the writer's marketplace i mean at that point self-publishing was not a thing So I was definitely inculcated on this idea of traditional publishing early. By the time I was in high school and college, self-publishing was becoming a thing. In fact, it was becoming the thing in a lot of ways, especially right after I exited college. It was something that at that point I sort of had to look at it and be like, well, I could do this. 15% goes to an agent. What do I give up there? That's been handling contracts and that's access so that all of the publishers that I started to identify of places I would love to see my book housed were agent-only submissions. Whether or not that's an elitist system or a system with gatekeepers that have other effects, probably it was not something I was considering at the time. Looking at the idea of self-publishing, had Amazon Direct been around when I was just starting out, it might have been a different decision. The people I saw doing it Particularly the people I saw printing their own books, bringing their own books places, hand selling their books. It was Mm -hmm. work that I felt deeply uncomfortable with for myself, not for them. I mean, I saw them Mm -hmm. doing amazing things that I envied because they have that entrepreneurial selling ability. When I tried my hand at that, even being at a few book fairs, you're sitting there and you're sort of trying to catch people's attention, right? Because you're one of like 50 tables and. They're only going to buy one or two books. And how do you make sure that you're one of them? And it's I literally
0: the worst,
2: literally the worst, right? That is like the stuff of my nightmares. I was never good at that. And I knew it from the start. I knew that that was not going to be something where I felt comfortable, where I felt like, God, this is invigorating. I've always used that as a really good guide of what actually makes me feel lighter and what makes me feel heavier, what makes mm-hmm. me feel more excited and what makes me feel less excited. Teaching, writing, craft has been sort of one of the great gifts of my life and being able to share my experiences with people and help them improve their own writing and honestly help them believe that they're capable of continuing. I think that's the hardest thing with writers mm-hmm. is just how do you keep at it? You have rejections. Yeah. You have really bad days. How do you get up and do it again tomorrow? I think that is the biggest yeah. thing and that's sort of one of the most sacred duties I see as a writing educator is to Help people believe that they can continue tomorrow, that they are good enough for
0: themselves to continue Mm -hmm. tomorrow. And how do you do that? What do you say that gives them, I guess, for lack of a better word, hope?
2: I think, honestly, talking about some of the stuff that we've talked about here about that permission to suck, people get really frustrated that they see their writing as not as good as a published novel. And I think there's so much fallacy involved in that there's so many drafts and editors and people touching those manuscripts. But I think there's also a really beautiful truth in that, in that anytime we look at our own work and say, this isn't good enough, it doesn't mean that you suck, right? Like it doesn't mean that you are terrible at this and you should quit and give up. What it means is that your taste level has developed to a point that you can recognize when you are asking better of yourself or of Mm -hmm. others. Anytime you're reading something and saying this isn't good enough, it means that you know what better looks like. If you are able to recognize it, then it's only a matter of developing the tools, gaining the tools, and gathering the tools to be able to put that into effect. And there is no stop to learning craft for writing, right? You never stop. Each book I've written has demanded a wildly different learning curve for me. I really hope that every book I continue to write will teach me new things and demand I learn new exercises and tricks and techniques, ways of approaching it. And I think the one thing that has remained along all of these novels is the ability to believe that I will figure out a way. I think that's the one thing Mm -hmm. that I've learned in all that time of taking it for myself, of rewriting a book over 15 years just you have mm. to trust that if you come back to it if you do the work you will figure it out
0: I agree a hundred percent I think that is something that a lot of people need to hear and I love that you've found a way to communicate that because when people say to me I want to be a writer no matter what their age I have a hard time not being like don't <laughs> <laughs> it's just so damn painful and it's not because i don't think they can it's because i don't want them to have to suffer <laughs> well and that's the difference right between writing and publishing Do
2: you want to be a writer? Yeah, absolutely. Go off and do it. Do you want to be a published author? Really think hard about that
0: position. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Make that plan B. That's what I always tell everyone. It's like, I love you and I believe in you, but plan B. Because that's what it has always been for me. Mm -hmm. Even now. I mean, I, I do this full time, but I have so much side hustle going on so that I have backup. If something bombs, you could be done. And that's all there is to it. You've got to be prepared for the rug coming out from underneath you at any moment. It's not for everyone. And that's got nothing to do with talent.
2: And you know what? I have been the cautious writer. I have been the throw it all in writer. I've made writing my plan A. I have tried to do it full time. I have backed off to doing it extremely part time. I have found a balance. I've done all those things. It had to be in different phases of my life. That relationship had to continually change. The only game is to stay in the game. All of writing is being honest with yourself. I think writing will expose you in every way it can, Mm -hmm. in the process, in the Mm -hmm. publishing, in the sharing, in everything. So being as honest and in touch with yourself as you can to figure out what you need at any given moment. And if you need to step away, you do it. You find a way to commit and you find a way to survive.
0: Sometimes... I see published authors telling aspiring authors, never give up, never Mm -hmm. give up, and you will succeed if you never give up. And I always tell people, give up, it's fine, go ahead. Sometimes you have to, because you cannot take rejection in the face over and over and over every day and be mentally healthy. I gave up so many times. Over my 10 years of trying to get an agent, I was like, okay, not working. And I gave up and I took a break, like just this mental, emotional reset. And then I'm like, all right, I'm ready to get punched in the face again. Here I come. Appreciate the thought behind never give up, but I think it needs a qualifier. Last thing. Where can uh, listeners find you online so people can follow you and keep up with you, especially pictures of your dog? So on Instagram,
2: I promise pictures of my dog, my niece, and the occasional forest. There, (laughs) I am AC Goggin, or at AC Goggin. I don't know. How how do we do handles verbally?
0: Right, right. I don't know. On
2: Twitter, I am also at AC Goggin, and I tend to be a little bit more political there, a little bit more sassy. So that's more of my thoughts and feelings. I am technically on Tumblr. I'll mm-hmm. be honest. I barely check my Tumblr anymore, but I like that it exists. Me neither. And on Facebook, you can find AC okay. Goggin as the author page on Facebook. Oh, and my website. I suppose that's true. ACGoggin.com. Um, sure. AC Goggin is A-C-G-A-U-G-H-E-N. So those are the sort of places I live on the internet when awesome. well, I'm not hiding from people.
0: Writer, Writer, Pants on Fire is produced by Mindy McGinnis, music by Jack Corbel. A special thank you to fellow authors Alyssa Palombo and R.C. Lewis, as well as patron Stephen Avery for helping to make this episode possible. If you find the blog or podcast helpful, please consider showing your support by visiting patron.podbean.com forward slash Writer, Writer, Pants on Fire and making a donation. I'm your host, Mindy McGinnis, and we'll be back next week with another episode of Writer, Writer, Pants on Fire, where authors talk about things that never happened to people who don't exist.